Well, good morning again to you, and I, I welcome you to Holy Week. This is uh, the most important week in the calendar for us as Christians, and actually for the history of the world. What happened in this week, some 2,000 years ago, changed basically everything. It began with what we call, as the children identified this morning, as Palm Sunday. It went through a lot of things happened this week in Jesus' life. In fact, something I try to do each Holy Week is trace what happened each day. It's very significant. And in fact, half of the Gospel of John is just the last week of Jesus' life. Half of it. So it's very significant. Of course, on Friday, we have this, it is finished. That's when Jesus died on the cross, called Good Friday. And this Good Friday, and we're going to deal with the seven things Jesus said while he was on the cross. It is finished, of course, is one of the seven. And that is a very, very dark day. We call it Good Friday because of what happened as a result of it, but it was not good. It was terrible, to say the least. And on Friday night when we gather together, it's going to be dark. By that, by that I mean it's, we're dealing with a very tough, difficult subject. But... Friday's coming. Friday is here, but Sunday's coming. And of course, that's the, the brightest day of the year when Jesus rose from the dead, Resurrection Sunday morning. So this is a very, very important week. But today, we're going to do our last installment of the book of Daniel. Let me remind you of where we have been. Remember, it all began with a young man, 15 years of age, who was taken from his homeland as an exile, transferred hundreds of miles away to Babylon to be brainwashed by the Babylonian government and then used against his own people. That was the intention. Daniel was from the nobility. He's very, very wealthy background that he had, and he's a brilliant man. But he refused to compromise his principles because he was Jewish. And as a result, God honored him and his friends. He was the one, perhaps, of better than anyone else other than Jesus in the Bible who epitomized what it means to be in the world, a dynamic part of this real world, and yet did not take on the the wrongful moral standards of the world in which he lived. And yet he influenced it in an incredible way. Chapter 2, then, we turn to Daniel about to be killed. Because this crazy king had a dream, he couldn't remember his, his dream, and he said, all these people that were in training to be wise men were going to kill them all unless they can tell me what my dream was, as well as what it meant. And of course, everyone said, that's impossible. There's no one on earth who can tell you what you dream. No one can read minds. Daniel couldn't either. He prayed to God, and God revealed to Daniel not only the king's dream, but what the dream meant, saving Daniel's life. Well, then in chapter 3, Daniel's friends were commanded to bow down to an idol, but they knew that God had commanded them not to do so. They decided to take a stand and civilly disobey the government, and they, of course, would have been burned in the fiery furnace if God had not, in this case, protected them, which he did. Then in chapter 4, we find the story of this crazy King Nebuchadnezzar As crazy as he was, as riddled by power and immorality as this man was, God loved him. And he had a a dream. And in his dream, he didn't know what it meant, but it really scared him. And Daniel interpreted his dream, mainly telling him that he's going to go nuts. He's going to think he's a a cow. 
And he's going to have a period of mental illness for a long period of time, seven years. And when he comes out of it, he's going to acknowledge the God of heaven is what happened. So one of the greatest leaders in world history, King Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonian kingdom, became a follower of the true God, often through the the involvement of Daniel. However, one of of Nebuchadnezzar's successors down the line, several kings named Belshazzar, was a very, very evil man, not like his great-grandfather. And he was partying big time as his kingdom, his, his great city of Babylon, was being surrounded by the Persian army. And the handwriting on the wall took place. And Daniel said to this king, unlike King Nebuchadnezzar, you are one arrogant twit, and God has had enough of you. And your kingdom this very day is going to be conquered. And it was. We know historically exactly what happened, how the Persians conquered the city without without bloodshed. They took over, and now the Babylonian Empire was gone, and the Persian Empire rose. One of the two of the greatest empires in world history. Well, This new empire, Daniel was elevated, though an old man in his 80s, to one of the highest positions and was going to become the prime minister of this government. But his fellow people said, hey, we don't like some foreigner, especially some Jew, to be our boss. So they concocted a scheme by which people were required to pray to the king, which, of course, Daniel, as a Jewish, faithful Jewish man, found completely absurd and evil. He refused to do so. He prayed to the God. He was thrown in the lion's den. And again, God protected him. And that's that famous chapter 6, Daniel in the lion's den. Well, the latter portion of the book of Daniel is his prophecies. Daniel was given unique insight into the future, perhaps greater insight than almost anyone else in the entire Bible, maybe other than the apostle John in the book of Revelation. And in fact, it is Daniel's writings that are the foundation for the writings of Jesus, as well as the Apostle John in Matthew and Revelation. Daniel has a number of visions. His first vision is of of four beasts that represent four successive kingdoms, the Babylonian kingdom and the Persian kingdom and the Greek kingdom and the Roman kingdom. He defines them and uh, shows um, uh, some really scary stuff. And then his second vision, he he talks about two different animals in this one, but they foretell now the coming of some world leader that is really, really powerful, really, really smart, and really, really bad. In light of that, Daniel is scared, but not so much that it keeps him from functioning. But at a point in time, During the Persian kingdom, he looks at his calendar and realizes that God had predicted that the captivity of the the Jewish people would only last 70 years. And he gets out his calculator and he says, whoa, the time's almost up. So one of the most beautiful prayers in the whole Bible is given by Daniel in chapter 9, in which he pleads with God to have mercy on his people and for God to be true to his promise. And of course, God always is. God says, Daniel... I will be true to my promise. And within, within a year of that time, Cyrus, the Persian king, gives the Jewish people the, the opportunity to return to their ancestral homeland. But Daniel never went back. He's an old man now in his 80s. Nor did Ezekiel. And most of the Jewish people never returned to the promised land. They, in fact, stayed in Babylon and scattered throughout the Babylonian Persian empires. Today, Iraq and Iran. But 
God gave to Daniel in chapter 9 a vision of what was called the 77s or the 70 weeks as to what would be the, the future history of Daniel's people, the Jewish people, and Daniel's homeland, Israel, and Daniel's holy hill, the temple in Jerusalem. And then in this vision, in chapter 9, God tells him what was going to happen, including that one day, around the year 33 AD, interestingly, because God gives Daniel the timeline, a Messiah would be cut off. It's called Good Friday. Daniel predicts the date of it, somewhere around April in 33 AD. If you do the math, which you can do with a calculator, remembering, of course, that they had a, a lunar calendar, not a solar calendar as ours is, you can see that Daniel predicted the coming of the Messiah and the date at which he would be cut off. But then there's a gap. And Daniel, from that gap, he talks about what is going to happen in the last years of the history of the Jewish people, because he's focusing on the Jewish people. Well, then we get to chapter 10, and uh, God gives more details about this future for the Jewish people. Chapters 10, 11, and 12 is a single vision The first part sets it up. Chapter 11, which we dealt with last week, has more than 100 specific prophecies. And then today is chapter 12, in which Daniel finally gets to the end. What will be the end for Daniel and his people? And that's where we turn today. So I simply titled this one, The End. (laughs) Very simple. And all the things I have to say today are taken directly from the text of Scripture. The first thing God says that's going to, the first facet of the end that Daniel envisions, remember, this is for his people, the Jewish people, and secondarily for us, but not primarily for us who are not Jewish people. This is primarily for the Jewish people. Daniel is told that at the end of the history of the Jewish people, There will be a time of great distress and deliverance. There will be a time of suffering and salvation. And any of you who know anything about Jewish history, if you've ever studied it, and by the way, you should, and I don't mean just as a Christian, anyone with any historical sense should study the history of the Jewish people. And if you do, you'll find that it's a history of incredible accomplishment and horrible sufferings. The Holocaust is just the latest, but there have been pogroms against the Jewish people in almost every nation of the world, including places in our own country. Anti-Semitism is one of the oldest, deepest hatreds of the human people, and completely inexplicable, other than something horrible is going on in the cosmic realms, that the poor Jewish people, a very small segment of the human population, should be treated so horribly throughout all of human history. But Daniel is told way in advance, remember this is like 500 BC, that at the end of the history of the Jewish people, there'll be a time of distress, but also deliverance. Here's how Daniel uh, chapter 12 begins. At that time, Michael, remember Michael? He's mentioned several times in the Bible. He's the guardian angel, if you will, of the Jewish people. Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found 
written in the book will be delivered. Remember, if we continue from chapter 11, the time it talked about at the end of chapter 11 is the time that we today call the tribulation. But at some point during that tribulation period, a period of terrible trouble that the Bible says is seven years in length, in the middle of it we have an event called the abomination of desolation introduced by Daniel, carried out by Antiochus IV Epiphanes historically that foreshadowed what the Antichrist would do inaugurates a period that's known as the Great Tribulation. So now things will get very, very bad. But into this scenario of great evil against the Jewish people, God will dispatch the guardian angel, the great angel of the Jewish people, who we know as Michael. Now, if you go to Revelation chapter 12, verse 12, it talks about, this is the Apostle John, says one day at the end times, Michael, the great archangel, will fight a cosmic battle that none of us will see, thankfully, between Michael the archangel and Lucifer the archangel, and Michael the archangel will win, and Lucifer will be thrown to earth, and all hell will break loose on planet earth. I think I've used the illustration before of what happened to me in high school. I was a football player, and uh, we played uh, my senior year. We had a very good team. We were undefeated, and we played against a team that we were killing. <laughs> we were ahead by 40 points at halftime. And uh, there was no possible way this team could beat us. But in the second half, this team started to play really dirty. They'd tackle someone, and they'd bite, scratch under the, under the pile. So the referees couldn't see it, and we got mad and started to fight back. Well, a big brawl broke out. In fact, my father, who was in the stands, came out of the stands to try to break up the ball, brawl, and someone on the other team took their helmet and hit my dad on the head with his helmet. Finally, the referees called the game. We never finished the game, but of course, we won. That's a, a picture of Satan. Satan lost. In fact, he lost on Good Friday. That's when he, and when Jesus rose from the dead, he lost. But he's not going to roll over and play dead. He's going to play dirty. That's what he does. And he's played dirty now for 2,000 years, but someday he's going to play mega dirty. Why? Because all access to God is going to be thrown out. And he is now going to be defeated by Michael. That's what Revelation tells us. And so the dirt is going to be so bad, humanity has never seen the likes of it. So said Daniel, the prophet. Pretty, pretty bad. So what's God going to do? Well, God is going to be, though Satan is in the process of wreaking havoc on the Jewish people and secondarily on, 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 on anyone who believes in God, God's angels are going to be fighting on their behalf and there will be deliverance. Who, who will be delivered? Well, those whose names are found in the book of life. So an obvious question is, well, what is this book of life? It's a, it's, a, it's a phrase that's used in a number of passages in the Bible. I, I don't know that God has a book. I don't think he needs a book. But it's, a, it's, a, it's an image that we can relate to as human beings because we have books and we have books of names. We have telephone directories and other such things. And apparently God knows all the people throughout all of history who are his. And, boy, I want my name on that list, and I'm sure you do too. And remember when, uh, last year when we talked through the book of Romans, we were at chapter 11, 
And Paul is grieving because he so loves his people, the Jewish people, but many of them had rejected Jesus as the Messiah. But the prophet Zechariah says, the day will come when they will look on the one they have pierced. This is Zechariah around in the 400s BC. He says, someday the Jewish people will look on the one they have pierced and they will be saved. And now Daniel says, the day will come. And Paul said, the day will come when the Jewish people in mass, many of them will realize we missed it. We we missed it. Our Messiah has been here. And thankfully, he's coming back. And of course, many, many Jewish people, and hopefully, I'm hoping for billions, billions of us will have our names written in that book as well. This is what Paul wrote. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, your name's in the book. And Jesus said these words, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus said that. Those are some pretty precious Precious promises. Well, what's going to happen next? The second facet of the end that Daniel envisions is that there will be a resurrection of the dead. This is verse 2. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Now, by the way, this, um, I, 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 I have in my possession, and I read all the time, a Jewish study Bible. These are not Christians. And of course, it's just the Old Testament, because that's the only part of the scripture that the Jewish people acknowledge. But I have a Jewish study Bible. And when I read it this week, they said, this is the clearest passage in the whole Old Testament that there will be a resurrection of human beings. Well, it's not the only passage. One of my favorite is is in the book of Job. Job, you know, who's not Jewish. Job might be the oldest book in the Bible. It might be older than the time of Moses. We don't know exactly, but it's very ancient. Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives. And someday, with my own eyes, I will see him. Well, who's he? He's not talking about his spirit. He's talking about a resurrection body. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives. And after I die someday, with my own eyes, I will see him. That's in the Old Testament and many other places. But this one's the clearest. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. Now, why do you think the Bible uses the image of sleep to describe death? It's a euphemism for death. But the reason the Bible uses that is because When you sleep, it is implied that you will wake up. And when you die, it is implied that you will be resurrected. You will come back to life again. Now, the Bible seems to teach that there are a variety of resurrections. There's a resurrection of of believers. Remember, it says in Thessalonians that we who are alive will not precede those who have already died in Christ. Those who have died in Christ will arise. We who are alive will rise. The, The righteous throughout all of history will rise before the millennium 
so that we can be on this earth for a thousand years under the reign of Christ. But the people who do not follow God, who have not honestly understood their own sin and asked God for forgiveness, that's what God asks us to do. It says they won't rise until the time after Jesus, after the, the time they've called the millennium. And when they rise, they will have to stand before God at what the Bible calls the great white throne judgment, and they will have to, they will be judged according to their works. The Bible is crystal clear that every human being will have to stand before God, and we will all be judged by our works, all of us. But we have an option. We can stand before God, who knows everything, who's taken a a video of our whole life and not everything we've done, everything that we've not done, but every motive we've had, every thought that we have, he has a record of it all, a perfect record. And we can stand before God, the judge, and he says, let's play the video because you think you're righteous enough to get into heaven. Let's play the video. And you see, do you want your video played? You may want yours. I don't want mine. I've done so many things people nobody knows about. I've done so many things contrary to what God, what is good, and I know they're not good, and you know it too. I've done so many. I'd be in deep weeds. I don't want my video played. I don't want you to see my video, much less God. He knows it way better than I do. But there's an option. The option is we can have Jesus' video played in our place. So when God, the Bible says, we can be clothed in his righteousness. So God can take our video and replace it with Jesus' video. Now, I like that one. And so when when I stand before God, God, I said, you know, God, I don't want my video. It's really, really bad. But I believe, I placed my faith that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And the Bible says that I can be clothed in his righteousness. I'm going to take that because I'm be really in bad shape. If you look at my video, could you play Jesus instead? God says, yeah, I'll do that. No, I want to watch that one. Can you imagine watching the video of the life of Jesus? Never, never sinned. It was never a right thing that he should have done that he didn't do. The tone of voice with, with which he spoke, everything was perfect. Every single motive was right. I want that one. I want to, I want to hide behind his video. And God says, yeah, I'll let any human being who wants, who's honest enough to realize you can't stand in your own righteousness before a holy God, I'll let you be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That's the gift I will offer you. That's called grace. According to the Bible, all human beings will be resurrected. And the determining factor by which we will be judged before God will be our works. You can either choose the works of Jesus or your own works. Now, who would choose their own works, to be honest? Only someone who's deceived or very arrogant. I mean, I can't imagine anyone else who would do that. You'd have to be, you don't, you've never looked deeply into your own heart. Are you dumb enough to think you could stand before God and declare how good you are? Who could do that? I can't imagine. That, that's so offensive to God. That's so dishonest, so arrogant. And what God is asking of us is, no, no, set aside your dishonesty. Arrogance isn't going to cut it in the kingdom of heaven. 
Tell God the truth. Tell yourself the truth. Tell each other the truth. Don't ever put on airs and don't look down your nose at any other human being because you have no right to that. Someone said, well, that a Christian is only one beggar telling another beggar where we can find bread. That's all we are. None of us greater than any other human being. We have no right to heaven any more than anyone else does. Apart from the righteousness of Jesus, that's our plea. Well, how do you Jewish people, remember, that's who Daniel is writing to about the end. How, how should you live in, in light of these hard times that are coming? Well, verses 3 and 4 tell us. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens. And those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, roll up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. So he says, how do you live in light of this? If you're wise, you'll shine. And you'll be involved in the business of leading other people to righteousness. That's how you'll shine. Remember what Jesus said? Jesus said to his followers, he said, you are the the light of the world. Let your light so shine that people may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So what do we do? Live good lives, but not good lives that point to ourselves. So so when people say, oh, you're a goody two-shoes. No, I don't want to be a goody two-shoes because I'm not. But what I want to do is I would love to live such a life that when people see me and how I live my life, they go, whoa, you reflect something. Yeah. God doesn't say do good deeds so that people think you're a good deed person, but so that you may glorify your Father who is in heaven. And so what do you do if you're wise? You involve your life in leading other people to righteousness. That's it. That's a pretty good way to live a life. In fact, I can't think of any better way in all the world. And then God says, seal up what you've learned, Daniel. So he said, here's here's how you can live a wise life. Shine like the brightness of the heavens. Save other people. Lead them to righteousness. And specialize on this book that Daniel's just written. Seal it up and focus on it. That's what God said. Pretty good advice. Well, the fourth facet of, of, of information Daniel's given by God for the end of the Jewish people has to do with timing. So Daniel's going to now a- ask a question. The question we want to ask God is, okay, God, when is this going to take place? And if you ask God that question, I know the answer you will get. That's right. He's given you nothing. Because God is never going to tell us when it's going to take place. But that's not Daniel's question. Daniel's question is, because remember, this is during a time of great distress. Daniel's question is not when will this happen, but how long will it last? God, is there an end to this? Will this time of distress continue? And God says, no, no, it won't continue. There will be an end. Here's the next verses. This is verses 5 through 7. Then I, Daniel, looked. And remember, this is a vision. He tells us that in chapter 10. I, Daniel, looked, and there before me stood two others, probably angels, one on this bank of the river, the Tigris River. He told us that in chapter 10. And the other on the opposite bank. One of them said to the man clothed in linen. Remember we encountered him in chapter 10? 
perhaps the pre-incarnate Jesus who was above the waters of the river. So I guess he's floating somewhere. Remember, this is a vision. How long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? That means how long is it going to last? The man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river lifted his right hand and his left hand toward heaven. And I heard him swear by him who lives forever saying, it will be for time, times, and half a time. Time, one, times, two, half, and a half, three and a half. We've come up with that number many times already, three and a half years. Why three and a half years? Why? Okay, you told us it's going to end after three and a half years of great tribulation. Why? Oh, here's the answer. When the power of the holy people has been finally broken, these things will be completed. What's going to, what power is going to be broken? Finally, finally, the Jewish people, that's Daniel's people, are going to realize we have pierced the one who was our Messiah. And finally, the power of the deception will be broken. And in mass, not all, but most, many, will say, oh, Jesus is our Messiah. When the power of the tradition, the power of religion, the power of arrogance, when that power is finally broken through what? Suffering, distress, it's over. It'll be over because there's a definite end to the sufferings of God's people. And then what will happen? And here's the last words of the book of Daniel, verses 8 to 13. I heard, but I didn't understand. So I asked, my Lord, what will the outcome of all this be? He replied, get on with your life, Daniel. <laughs> That's what he said. Go your way, Daniel, because the words are rolled up and sealed until the time of the end. It's not going to apply to you. This is many, many years in the future. Many will be purified, made spotless, and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. From the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished, remember that's the abomination of desolation we've seen many times already, and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Blessed is the one who waits for and reaches the end of 1,335 days. What in the world? There's a difference of 45 days. What does that mean? I'll tell you what it means. I don't know. Nor does anyone else know. They have speculation, but no one knows. As for you, go your way till the end. You will rest. And then at the end of the days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. The day will come, Daniel, when you will stand face to face before God and you will get what you deserve. And it will be really, really good. That's called um, rewards. In the New Testament, it's called the Bema, the judgment seat of Christ. The great white throne judgment, as we mentioned earlier, is the judgment of those who wish to stand before God based on their works. And that will not be a pleasant judgment. But there's another judgment. It's called the bima, or the judgment seat of Christ. The bima is the raised platform from which the king or the, the governor would give out the, the wreaths at the end of the Olympic or Ismian Games. It's a place where good things are passed out. Thus, the day will come when Jesus, the judgment seat of Christ, 
judgment, not bad. This one, you want to be there. And you want Jesus to say, ah, you did a good job. Thank you. Well done, a good and faithful servant. And so we end the book of Daniel. And let me end it with giving you five questions. We all must wrestle with these. Question number one, is my name in the book of life? That's a pretty important question. It's one I ask myself, uh, and I hope you do too. When the roll is called up yonder, will I be there? I want my name in the book of life. And you know who God wants in that book? Peter told us, God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. That's God's heart. God wants everyone in that book. I want everyone in that book. And of course, the obvious question is, I want to be there too. Is my name in the book of life? There's not salvation in any other, for there's only one name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. That's Jesus. It's my name in the book. Number two, what is the basis of my hope for eternal life? Is the basis of my hope that I've lived a good life Or is the basis of my hope that I have trusted in Christ's righteousness? The song says, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. That's what I want. I want my righteousness not to be my good deeds, but rather the the righteousness of Jesus. Third question, am I living wisely? Which means, am I seeking to lead people to righteousness? That's how a wise person lives in light of the end. (laughs) Am I living a wise life? Am I seeking to lead people to righteousness? Question number four, has my power been broken? Remember, Daniel says, how long is this going to last? God says, it's going to last a predetermined length of time after the power has been broken. Has my power been broken? One of the the things, one of the songs I love, the verses so well is, 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 oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander. Lord, I fear it. I'm prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above Has my arrogance been broken? Has my religiosity been broken? Has my notion that I'm better than anyone else been broken? Has that been broken? If not, not good. And last of all, am I living my life for the Lord's well done? Daniel said, the last words, Daniel, you're going to get your inheritance. And boy, in Daniel's case, it's going to be a beauty. I don't know what that guy's going to get. He's probably going to get, I don't know, all of Asia or something like that. I don't know what he'll get. But he's sure going to get a lot because he's an incredible man. But am I living for the Lord's well done? Or for, hey, I want this for me. Or I want to live a life that you'd be pleased with and has profit for other human beings. We began the first week we were together, if you remember, with a song that I learned as a child that... That song, Dare to be a Daniel, Dare to stand alone, Dare to have a purpose firm, Dare to make it known. Simple, but quite profound. That's where it ends.
Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this incredible human being that you've given us the privilege to know a bit from afar, even though he lived thousands of years ago. You loved him and you love us. We're thankful for the way that that love has been so costly and so powerful because of what Jesus did for us. We know that there's no greater love than the one that Jesus demonstrated by coming here to this earth and then dying for our sins. And I pray that that would so grip us this week as we go through Holy Week, that when we come to the resurrection next week, we just shout for joy because we have the privilege of being people for whom you have opened up the gates of eternity. And uh, when the role is called up yonder, we all want to be there. Thank you for the privilege of being there through Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.